I want to welcome those of you who've come from out of town. I know, uh, I know because I see our expansive size here that what CNN says is true. We eat 5,000 calories on Thursday. Their predictive prophecy, I listened to the report on Wednesday, said be prepared to eat 5,000 calories tomorrow and uh, have an overflowing church. <laughs> I'm always interested in the advice the commentators give. Would you like to know not how to fall into the trap of consuming 5,000 calories, they said. First thing was eat smaller portions. Isn't this so helpful because we haven't thought of this. And the second thing was wear tight pants. This is a female commentator, by the way. Wear tight pants, drink a lot of water. But it was even better on Thanksgiving Thursday when we were driving around, moving around town. We, were, we had NPR on. A woman called in with an ethical dilemma over her Thanksgiving meal. I don't know if any of you heard this, but she was calling for her mother who was too embarrassed to phone. Called into a woman who does a, a, apparently a cooking show there on NPR. Here was the challenge. The woman had the turkey thawing in the garage quite nicely. Everything was on track for a, a table set for 12. When she heard some noise from the garage, so she went and opened the door only to find her two Labradors had either side of the turkey fighting over the turkey. So the ethical dilemma? Do you serve it or not? The caller said, well, it's already in the oven. We are serving this turkey. We have 12 people coming, and I kid you not, the commentator on the other end said, well, this would be a good time to wing it. <laughs> uh, this is a good day not to take the turkey to the table, to carve it into the kitchen, and just to announce dinner is served. I love the advice I get over the holidays. And we welcome you. You're sitting in a church that we love, those of us who call this home, and the pastoral staff every Tuesday gives thanks for this congregation. And we welcome the, those of you who are visiting today to join us. I wonder if it was a scene like this when Jesus returned to his hometown church. I wonder if it was the children coming home from being gone and maybe a holiday when the boy Jesus returned to the synagogue in Nazareth and reached for a scroll. It was his turn to read for the day. It's Isaiah that he opened. He could choose anything, but it's Isaiah, the boy Jesus opened. And to his home crowd in Nazareth, a synagogue audience, he began with the words in a loud, clear voice. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus rolled the scroll up. The Bible says he gave it to the attendant and sat down, and everyone's eyes were on Jesus as Jesus finished today. These scriptures have been fulfilled in your hearing, which is to say, if you heard what I said, now you will help me enact what Isaiah proclaims. However, it didn't go so well from there on out. Not such a good day in the synagogue, not such a good Sabbath, because the accusation came from the crowd to Jesus, well, who, who is this boy? Just, isn't he just the son of Joseph, the artisan? Who, who's this Jesus? Jesus responded with another challenge that was kind of an insult when he said, 
you don't understand. Leave it to the lepers and the widows outside of Israel. They would understand this good news. And it went from bad to worse until they were by a hillside, the Bible says, and the crowd was ready to throw Jesus over the edge of a cliff. It's not so good to insult people from the front. Maybe not even to be honest. Jesus could choose any scroll that day, and he picks up Isaiah. Now they're in a pattern, I believe, in the gospel. For you just move ahead two verses, and here's Jesus in a new location with a new set of faces saying the very same thing. I've come to proclaim good news. And, and the question comes back to Jesus. Who is this person teaching with authority, healing, forgiving with authority? Who is he that he can act like a god? And the challenge comes back. It's good news, too good to be true. Proclaiming the day of the Lord's favor, the year of jubilee, you know, from the Old Testament. The day when all debts are forgiven. It's like a year of Sabbath. Good news, too good to be true. And, and if you follow the gospel story, I believe it's a pattern that repeats itself over and over again, each time in a new location, with new faces, with a new opportunity for Jesus to be perceived another way. Yet this is the pattern that continues again and again. Jesus really isn't good news, especially to those in power. Jesus is a threat. What Jesus is preaching again and again and teaching again and again from Isaiah's scroll is that the poor will no longer be poor. The blind will no longer be blind. The imprisoned are no longer imprisoned. People, this is what God's justice looks like. These are the words of Jesus. If you take divine justice seriously, it means you won't be blind. You won't be lame. You won't be imprisoned. You will actually be captives set free. Divine justice and I believe it's a summary of the gospel story, not only in Luke 4, but in Luke 1 and in Luke 7, we read almost the same words, Jesus describing to us what God's justice looks like, that God is indeed busy reconciling the world, saving the world, healing the world, redistributing goods in the world, restoring the world. This is what divine justice is all about, bringing order where there used to be chaos, returning things, making them right again. Last week, for those of you who are here, and we're ending now an eight-week-long conversation, last week I said judgment is good news. It's good news because our judge doesn't judge the same way other judges judge. It's good news because judgment actually brings some light on the subject. It, it, it tells us what the situation is. Judgment is good news. We want to know, and I likened it to being sick. Judgment tells you what the diagnosis is, and if that's judgment, then I would say this morning that justice is the solution or the healing balm for the problem. So that if it is good news for judgment, it is also good news for justice. That when the justice of God comes, it's like medicine, it's like healing, it's restoration, and it's always good, I believe, for humans. God's justice is always good. Now, when you and I say justice is served, we understand humans use the word a little differently. When we, we use it more like the image we looked at last week, that there's some balance, there's some scale to be balanced out. Justice means you'll get what you deserve, I'll get what I deserve. Justice means that when all the evidence is in and we let the justice system do its work, the accurate punishment, the accurate consequence will take place. You and I know this isn't always true in life, by the way, don't we? Sometimes we get away with things and sometimes we don't. 
When I was in college, all of you have returned home from college. I remember clearly Walla Walla College taking the bus from the college downtown to the hospital where I had to do clinicals. I hated going at 5 in the morning and catching the bus and wearing this white uniform. I was studying nutrition, and they made me dress like a nurse. And it very much troubled me to get on the bus at 5 a.m. in these bright white shoes, and, and I would go in the bathroom and hide rather than go do my practicum. Well, I'm already at the hospital. What a ridiculous thing. I would hide and sleep in the bathroom. What do you think? If you miss half of your practicums, can you get an A in that class? Yes. <laughs> Is that justice? Is that justice? Or when I graduated from academy, when all the grades are turned in and that final week before, before the robes are passed out and they look at your cumulative GPA, mine comes out at 3.49. For those of you who went to a, an academy where 3.50 was the tipping scale, that's justice. I earned a 3.49. I wore red cords instead of gold cords that year by just that much. Sometimes justice happens the way we think it should, and sometimes it doesn't. There is a difference between the way humans understand justice in our world and what I'm going to call divine justice or holy justice or holy other God justice. It doesn't always make sense to us. It isn't an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It isn't retributive in nature. It comes from the very character of a loving God, and therefore, it always intends to heal and restore. So when we think about God and justice, it's very much like Adam and Eve when they're caught sinning in the Garden of Eden. It doesn't really occur to them that there's something other than a terrible punishment, like it doesn't occur to the crowd that want to stone the woman caught in adultery that there's another way God might handle this like it doesn't occur to Zacchaeus that there's something else that could happen when he steals money from the treasury because divine justice is different than our justice it's a totally different holy other kind of world God is always working to restore creation I believe maybe it takes altering of our vision to catch on to this. Another way of looking at it, seeing a new picture or a vision. I told you a few weeks ago I was in this car accident in high school. Car went into the ditch. Some of you were here. I told you that car is sandwiched in the ditch so that the doors wouldn't open, and somehow I got out, and someone took me to safety, and, and besides a few stitches in the back, I was okay. What I didn't tell you was that I went into that ditch wearing glasses, and when I came out of that ditch, I guess a conk on the head can help you because I came out not needing glasses. From that day forward, I've never worn glasses. And I can't tell you what a be how beautiful the world looked when I came out of the ditch. <laughs> this is what the world looks like without glasses. It's like putting on a new set of lenses to look through the world. This is what God's justice looks like in our world. Well, let me look again and again. Sit and absorb the new picture of what God looks like. Why, why do I believe this is true? Two reasons that we've studied now for eight weeks. First of all, if God is total love, total other-centered agape love, the way I've been describing and characterizing God, it isn't just a description, it is God's character through and through. If that is God, I don't believe God can act outside of God's character. 
so that when God enacts justice, it is total love. However, I also believe that when you study Jesus in the Gospels, and that's what we've used as our lens for these eight weeks, trying to understand the character of God by studying Jesus, when you do that, over and over and over again, the picture emerges of a God who heals and restores rather than punish and, and uh, do retributive work. Over and over again, I see Jesus get angry maybe two or three times in the Gospels, but I never see Jesus give people what they deserve. Do you? I never see Jesus walking up to people, taking an assessment of the situation and saying, well, this is what you rightfully deserve now because of what you've done. And for that reason, I then, because if we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. If we've seen Jesus, we've seen the invisible God. I then come to the conclusion that must be what God's justice also is like. Totally healing, restoring redistributing totally good news in our world. For God, justice means reclaiming the vision of Eden, putting us back to a place where there was no pain and continuing on with the creative acts that God had put in place before sin came into our world. So we've called this the great identity theft of all time when Satan, the devil, the accuser, the dragon in Revelation, when Satan calls question on God's character early on and says, God really can't be as good as God says. You really ought not trust yourself with this God. In fact, you might be safer with the powers and the principalities of this world than in that God's care. That we call, have been calling a great identity theft. God saying Satan is, God, Satan saying God is something other than totally good, even in God's acts of justness. To the degree we believe that accusation that Satan has registered, then Satan is successful. To the degree we believe our God is not safe, even when it comes to justice and judgment from last week, to the degree we believe we would be better off on our own, Satan has been successful. So I think that there is for you and I a, a task of reimagining re-imaging God, because I'm not convinced we really believe God is all that good. Maybe we need to do a little reimagining or a little re-imaging. Go, go, go back and ask ourselves, where did I get that idea of God? Why do I think God is that way in the world? Sometimes when we gather in our home for the holidays, as we'll do at Christmas, we're now all adults in the circle, we tell stories of things we learned in the church growing up. And we're all grateful to have been raised Seventh-day Adventist Christians. I can't tell you how grateful I am. Sometimes we'll tell stories of little ideas we got, and my mother will say, where did you get that idea? We, we did not teach you that. Christy Lou, when you're in trouble, where did you get that idea? So my sister, when she was young, would I remember her assessing all the smokers in the world. And all the smokers had bad black lungs. And then soon she learned all the spoke smokers don't go to heaven. She started saying these things. And my mother would, where did you kids get that idea? We didn't teach you that. Sometimes we don't even know where we got the ideas, the imprinting we have of who God is and why we believe God is the way we say. It's a good time to re-image and to re-imagine and ask, do, where did I get that imprint and is it healthy and good? 
The task of re-imaging and re-imagining also means we may have to do a little house cleaning. One author says, and I think this is very accurate, God suffers from parental hangover. Think about that. Because in our earthly experiences and our human relationships that are not always so wonderful, we then ascribe to God what we've experienced here on earth. And we can't imagine God could be not only better, but that good. And so God suffers from parental hangover that you and I have placed on God. Maybe we'll, we have to reimagine and re-image and chip away at that. Maybe we have to be very careful about the way we teach God's justice. And this is one thing that troubles me, and I read it in our Sabbath school quarterlies and in our theology textbooks, that somehow God's justice has to be balanced with God's mercy and compassion. If God's justice went unchecked, if it wasn't for grace and mercy and compassion, good grief, we would all be in trouble. We, we speak about our God sometimes as if this is an imbalanced, chemically imbalanced God who's just ready to cut loose on us. And good thing, grace and mercy kick in and smooth out his justice. And, and we ought to be careful how we talk about that. Because I believe when God acts, God is acting in mercy. When God acts, God is acting in grace. When God acts, God's acting in justice. That that is a full expression of what it is to be a God of love. We don't have a God who suffers from some multiple personality disorder or from some chemical imbalance. When God acts, God acts in all of these ways together. We ought to be careful how we teach that. There is one expression in the gospel that is very clear, describing God, very succinct. Luke chapter 6. Matthew says it a little different way, but Luke chapter 6, there's a summary when Jesus says to those listening, Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Some of your Bibles say compassionate. Be compassionate, which is a good translation. Be compassionate as your Father in heaven is compassionate. There is a good summary, not only of the character of God, but also an ethical imperative for you and I. If this is God, this also ought to be us in the world. One sentence, we get it all. And you see how Jesus is now really in line with all those Old Testament prophets, like Amos, who said, let justice roll. Justice is good news. It's restoring order. It's healing. Or like Mike who said, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly, because every time justice is enacted, the creation gets a little better. Things are moving towards being repaired. It's good news for justice to come. So we sit in our world and we sometimes ask, Why and how is there so much wrong with this world? And and it occurs to me after eight weeks of studying with you on this topic, there is a better question we could ask, and I'd rather consider, why is there so much right in our world? Tell me, when you sat together on Thanksgiving and, and, and counted your blessings one by one, tell me if the world has gone so terribly wrong, how do you account for those blessings? Tell me how you account for the love and security you feel in your relationships at home. Tell me how you account for that that giggle that comes deep down from the belly of a child and comes out. How do you account for laughter and joy and peace of mind at the end of the day? How do you account for beauty and grace and expressions of that, like music and art and good conversation that prods us on, like, like writing and thinking? How can we account for all of this that is good in our world if our good world has gone so terribly, terribly wrong? 
we'll have to account for that. I, I believe we account by saying we have been challenged, but we have not been overcome. I bet you want to say that again. We have been challenged, but friends, we've not been overcome. That's how we account for so much good in the world. It is bad, but we can still look around the world and see fingerprints of the divine in action. That's how you sit at your table on Thursday or this afternoon and say, God is good. God is good. So maybe Christians just need to let that good news out. This troubles me a little bit that we are troubled by a God who's so good. What's the worst that could happen if God is really other-centered, totally good, agape, self-sacrificing love, if judgment is good, if justice is good, if all of this is really ultimately good news, why, why wouldn't we want to let this out to the world, a world who needs to know that God is good? That maybe Christians have misrepresented God in the past. What's what's the worst thing that could happen if we stood up and proclaimed, you want to know how good our God is? What's the worst that could happen? People would start abusing this God? Well, Well, take this God for all this God has to offer? So what? What, does it somehow cheapen or, or uh, uh, somehow lessen what God's gone through on our part? How could one ever say that what Jesus went through, what God has gone through, groaning with creation since the beginning of sin in our world, there isn't anything humans can do that cheapens what God's gone through. What is the risk of announcing God is good? And why can't Adventist Christians be the one singing that chorus in the world? Why can't that also be the remnant task? Our God is good. As I stand with you today, I see a couple of options of engagement. One is to be a victim in a world gone terribly, terribly wrong and to wait for rescue. Another option is to be a covenant partner in a world gone terribly wrong, a covenant partner who asks the question, what do I do with all the wrong in the world? What's my response? We can be the victim waiting for rescue who is angry, who who harbors hate. We could be the covenant partner in the world who continues asking, how do I chip away at the evil quotient in the world? How do I begin to enact restoration and healing in my world? We have a couple of options, and from the best I can tell, God doesn't need me sitting in my little kingdom earth complaining about what a terrible world that's gone wrong. What God needs out of me and out of you is a covenant partner who says, yes, but look at how much is right. I can still see the divine in this terribly wrong world. That's the covenant partner God needs. So so my hope is that we'll ask ourselves regularly, where did I get this idea about God? Is it biblically accurate? Is it helpful and healthy? Is it consistent with what others are saying, people I trust, people who are also working on God? My hope is that individually and as a congregation, we'll keep having the difficult conversations when there aren't always answers to be had. But we'll keep on with the conversation, asking important questions and not letting the world distract us with those things that are trivial. Who is our God? That's an important question for Adventist Christians to entertain.
My hope is that we'll be courageous enough also to go back and pick up the Gospels and read a little more Jesus, friends. What if we read a little more Jesus in your home, in your daily life? Would you just consider that? Read a little more Jesus. And when you're done reading Jesus, let that be the standard to which everything else in the Bible must measure, must be reconciled for a little church, for a little denomination, and I'm going to risk this comment this morning, for a little denomination born into and out of an interest and a consumption with Daniel and Revelation and this apocalyptic literature, for a little denomination sort of fueled and, and propelled by this, I'd also like to be a denomination that reads a lot more of Jesus and then asks, how does one reconcile this apocalyptic literature to Jesus? not the other way around. What if we read a little more Jesus? And what if, and my hope for you, is that the church would also consider language that is accurate to the divine still being present in our world. I'm a touch troubled and I've started working on this myself. What it means to be a people who understand the conflict in the world and we use language like the great controversy and there's a battle and there's a war being waged and there are warriors on the war field that my concern is that we not become children of warfare. All of this imagery of battle, the metaphor for war and violence, it concerns me a little when I read Jesus and I have a hard time finding that in him. What if we began understanding those metaphors and look for ways of speaking about ourselves that don't require us categorizing and identifying ourselves as, as a little denomination on a war path, but as a people who are children of light called to healing? Ooh, I could get excited about that in my church. It is hard work, I believe, a lifelong work to consider the compassion and the justice of God. We get quite comfortable in our world with the status quo. Now, be dismissed by the God who restores, by the God who heals, by the God who sets things right even in this very world. Go with that God through the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. And may all the church say, Amen. Amen.